Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Good morning again. If I, if I haven't met you, would love to do that before you leave today. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, that passage we just read. We are going to stop by another passage briefly before we get there, uh, but we'll be in Matthew chapter 5 for the bulk of our time together this morning. Uh, if you're new here this morning, like I said earlier, welcome. Uh, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, for you to know, we are working our way through uh, the book of Matthew as a church, just kind of seeing what we can learn from the life and ministry and teachings of Jesus in that book. And specifically right now, uh, we are in a section of Matthew commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is one of Jesus' most famous teachings that he gave during his ministry. And in this sermon, essentially, what Jesus does is he sort of systematically works his way through different arenas of our life and talks about what life for a follower of Jesus should look like in regards to those arenas of life. And as you heard earlier in the passage, up on the docket for discussion today is the topic of sex and divorce. So once again, if you're new, welcome. Uh, we're super glad that you're here today. You chose an interesting week to join us, but uh, this is what we're doing this morning. Uh, so let me just mention kind of from the beginning, uh, I realize anytime these topics specifically get brought up in a church setting, uh, probably it makes a few people at least a bit nervous. Uh, and that's understandable. I, I think there's at least a couple different reasons for that. Uh, one reason is that, let's just be honest, the biblical teachings on sex and divorce and marriage uh, are probably not the most popular perspectives on those particular topics in our world today, and that's fine. Um, but beyond that, I, I think there's actually something else going on too, and, and that's that the church, just historically speaking, if I'm honest, has not always done the best job discussing these topics. Even if what they said was technically correct, doctrinally and biblically and all of that, sometimes we haven't always done the best job with our tone or with how we've approached it or with the types of things we've said to people about it. I think if we're not careful, the church has ended up giving the impression over the years that Jesus' primary instructions when it comes to sex essentially amount to the word stop. Stop having sex, stop thinking about sex, stop thinking about having sex. Uh, essentially, some people think that that is what the Bible has to say on the topic. And if we could just be honest for a moment, Jesus' teachings in, in that passage that Eric just read for us a moment ago can honestly come across kind of that way, right? I mean, on the surface, it seems like Jesus just threatens some combination of hell and amputation for sexual sin, it's a bit strong, right? Or at least it reads that way to us. It can come across as pretty intense. But to understand what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and to understand why he says what he says about sex here, we need to first understand the framework for sex that he is operating out of. 
The, the assumptions that he has in his worldview for what sex is and what it's for. And I think once we sort of wrap our minds around that, we, we start to make a lot more sense of what he says here in Matthew chapter 5. And not only does it start to make a lot more sense, it, it becomes obvious and necessary if we want to understand and live into the reality of what sex was originally meant to be. So that's what I want us to do first. Before we get to Matthew 5, I want us to understand the framework for sex that Jesus is operating out of. And that framework comes from Genesis 2, verse 24. You don't have to turn there. We'll put it up there on the screen for you. But here's what it says in Genesis 2, talking specifically about the institution of marriage. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that verse right there, Genesis 2.24, is absolutely ground zero in the Bible when it comes to a biblical understanding of sex and also of marriage. Jesus and the other New Testament authors will time and time again circle back to this passage, Genesis 2, anytime that they want to discuss those particular topics. Because in this verse, we actually find out what marriage truly is and therefore what sex is by association. It, it is becoming one flesh with another person. That's the language used here in this passage. Now that phrase in Hebrew, one flesh, it describes when two human beings through marriage become inseparably one in nearly every way possible. So physically, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, relationally. One Hebrew scholar actually describes this idea of one flesh as two human beings, quote, becoming fused together at the deepest level of their humanity. That's what he says one flesh means. So biblically speaking, then, marriage is not just some sort of formal legal arrangement in which two people agree to file their taxes together and like share a last name. That marriage in the Bible is way more than just that. It's when two people choose to merge and unite their lives together as one entity. So uh, the song that came out several years back, All of Me by John Legend, who I know has been in the news a lot this week, him and his wife are going through a horrible time, just lost um, a child, I believe. But his song, All of Me, I think actually does a pretty good job describing what marriage is in the Bible. People always think I'm joking when I say that, but it really, I think it does a pretty good job at it. Because in the song, it's talking about how for both of them, all of them belongs to the other person. How they are giving their all, their everything to each other completely in their relationship. And when that song came out, I think a lot of us were very much in our feelings about it. And I think there were probably a couple of reasons for that. One probably is John Legend's silky smooth vocals, right? That's part of it. But I think the other reason that it connected with so many people is because in it, I think we find a reflection of what marriage was actually intended to be. Marriage, according to the scriptures, is when you give all of yourself to another person with nothing at all held back. That's what marriage was intended to be. And if that's what marriage is in the Bible, then sex is a physical representation of that. Sex, in other words, is, is doing with your body what is already true of the rest of the relationship. It's giving yourself completely to another person with nothing at all held back. And that is why the scriptures teach that sex belongs exclusively in the context of a marriage relationship. 
Because otherwise, you are communicating something with your body that is decidedly not true of the rest of the relationship. You're saying, when you take sex outside of that good context, what you're saying physically is, all of me is yours with nothing held back. But in reality, there's actually a good bit of me I'm holding back in the rest of life. You're saying, hey, I I love you enough to do this with you, but not more than this. I don't want to actually share my life with you. And and even when it comes to who I do this with, I like it with you right now, but in the future, I'd really prefer to keep my options open, if that's okay. So we can try to be coy about it, but that is, in essence, what we are communicating when we take the sexual relationship outside of a marriage context. We're communicating something with our bodies that is decidedly not true of the rest of our lives. And the Bible just views that as a very dishonest, disjointed way to go about a romantic relationship. And that brings us back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. You see, the reason that Jesus' warnings in our passage today read so aggressively to us today is because in this passage, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is actually not talking about sex. He's talking about the opposite of sex. He's talking about lust. What Jesus warns us against in Matthew 5 is not the beautiful picture of sexual intimacy that we find in Genesis 2. It's not that at all. In fact, it's the antithesis of it. The thing that Jesus is going to talk about in Matthew 5 at its core actually undermines and undercuts everything that sex was supposed to be about. And because Jesus and the rest of the Bible are very pro-sex, they are very anti-anything that destroys sex. And a lot of that can be summed up in what Jesus calls lust in this passage. So let's take a look. Let's work our way through Matthew chapter 5, now that we have that background, to see what Jesus is talking about here exactly. So take a look with me, starting in verse 27 of our passage. You have heard that it was said, meaning in the Old Testament it says this, you shall not commit adultery. So adultery most strictly in the Bible's language refers to a married person engaging in sexual activity with anyone that they're not married to. That's what the word adultery means. But we know elsewhere from the Bible that the same logic applies to a single person since any sexual activity that they participate in would be outside of marriage. So the the Old Testament law prohibits any and all of that. But next, Jesus is going to show us the intention behind that Old Testament command. He's going to try and show us what it was actually trying to accomplish, and it goes a lot deeper than what we just mentioned. So look with me at verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, or we could infer at a man, with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their heart. So apparently, the purpose of this Old Testament command wasn't just to prohibit sexual activity with somebody you're not married to. It was that, but it was more than that. It was also to point people away from lust, from looking at another person in order to lust after them. Now, the word lust in the Bible refers to any strong, overpowering desire for something that isn't yours. To use another Bible word, it it means to covet to to long after something that is not yours to have in the first place, to want something that doesn't belong to you. And everywhere else in the New Testament, this word lust actually is used to describe the desire for a thing, not a person. And I think that's kind of telling. 
Because lust is exactly that. It's when you take another human being and you turn them into an object in your mind. When you make them simply a means by which to satisfy your desires or your fantasy. It's when you functionally strip the humanity away from another person and view them as simply someone who can supply something that you want. Now, the primary thing that Jesus has in mind in this passage is obviously objecting, objectifying other people sexually speaking. Gazing at a person you're not married to because you are physically attracted to them in some way. That's the primary thing he's talking about. But that said, I, I don't think that lust is always sexual in nature. Lust is also when you spend time comparing and contrasting your spouse to other people. It's when you entertain thoughts in your mind about how much better your life might be if you were married to a different person or a different type of person. It's when you dwell on how much more fun or thoughtful or romantic that other person is than your spouse is. If you're single, it's when you envision marriage, when you think about marriage as primarily a thing to make you happy rather than primarily another person to give your life to. Because whether you realize it or not, that is all lust. Because what you are doing at its core is that you are objectifying another person. You're still using them in your mind as a means to an end. That too, I think, is a different type of heart adultery. But like I said, to be sure, Jesus is primarily talking about sexual objectification here. He's talking about the decision to take a, a person with a story and a soul and a past and a future and someone with needs themselves and boil them down to a collection of body parts that you enjoy looking at, fantasizing about, using for your own enjoyment, any of that. So just to make sure we're all clear on what we're talking about here, to state what should be obvious Lust is viewing any type of pornography. If it is a sin to look at a person in order to lust after them, porn has made that sin into an international pastime. So looking at porn would obviously be considered lust, but it's not just that. Lust is also clicking over to the Explore tab on Instagram, scrolling until you see the posts that have attractive, physically attractive men or women, maybe even giving them a little like to let, you, let them know that you're looking. It's when you see that person out for a run or that person at the gym with, with little clothes on or, or far too tight-fitting clothes on and you choose to take that second or third or seventh glance back at them. Lust is fantasy. It's hyper-sexualized movies and TV shows. We could go on and on with examples because as we're about to talk about, they're everywhere. But lust is any time that we turn other people into an object of our gaze, our fantasy, or our pleasure. Now, here's why I said earlier that all of that is the opposite of sex. And this is so important for us to get to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Remember that sex, according to the Bible, is giving all of yourself to another person. That's what it was meant to be. And if that's what sex is, lust truly could not be more different than that. Because it has the exact opposite intention. Lust is taking from another person while holding all of yourself back. So sex, by its very nature, gives to the other person while lust takes from the other person. 
Sex is sacrificial in its nature, while lust is consumeristic. Sex humanizes the other person, while lust objectifies the other person. In nearly every measurable way that there is, lust is the polar opposite of sex. And that is why Jesus here in this passage can simultaneously be against lust but for sex because lust and sex are not the same thing. They're exact opposites. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Now, all of that said, here is our problem. There are few things more ingrained into our society than lust is. Few things. I'm not exaggerating when I say lust is nearly everywhere that we look. You cannot go through the checkout line at the grocery store without seeing what amounts to soft porn on the magazine covers. Covered with headlines like, I saw this one the other day, make every man drool over you with these 17 makeup tips. So lust is everywhere. Uh, it's now college football season, praise the sweet Lord, right? So I've been watching way more TV on Saturday than I usually do. And what I've noticed as I've watched the commercials during football season is that we pretty much use lust to sell any product. Now, it doesn't even matter what it is. So the other day, there was a commercial that I kid you not, was 28 straight seconds of a man with no shirt on with the most killer six pack you have ever seen in your life. And it was just shooting this guy from different angles, right? And at the very end, the last like second or two of the commercial, it said, Gio, the fragrance for men. And I was like, wait, does the cologne create the six pack? Because I'm not really a cologne guy, but if it creates a six pack, I will totally try it. Absolutely. I saw another one that was literally, I, mean, I think the entire commercial, I think it was longer than 30 seconds, but the, the entire commercial was a man and a woman in what appeared to be the early stages of foreplay. I don't know if I can say that in church, but I just did. They were making out through the whole commercial, and then at the very end, it said, the new Lexus RX 350. And I was like, I don't think there was even a car in the commercial. Like, I don't think they showed a car at all. And so lust is everywhere in our society. It's absolutely everywhere. It's almost like we don't know how to get people's attention or hold people's attention or sell products or function much at all without lust. Whether you realize it or not, we are being discipled in hundreds of different ways each and every day to objectify other people as a normal way of life. Now, to all of that, some people in our society might say, Okay, but what's the big deal? Like, sex is a natural, human, healthy desire. What's the harm in people enjoying how other people look physically? Well, I'll just give you the data on it, the empirical data, and, and I will let you draw your own conclusion about whether or not lust is harmful. So everything I'm about to read to you is not, this is not Christian scientists doing this research. This is just general science, empirical data from the world of science. You, you can look it up. If you go to this um, sermon on our webpage, once it's posted, you can see where I got all of this. But just a few things that we empirically know about the effect of lust in our society. First, lust destroys intimacy. Studies are now showing that the more porn a person watches, the more crushingly unrealistic expectations they have about sex with an actual person. And, simultaneously, the less tolerance they have for the messiness of a real marital or sexual relationship. 
Second, lust also fuels sexual violence. There are are over 50 studies out there right now that directly link porn consumption to acts of sexual aggression and sexual assault. Lust is actually decreasing the frequency of sex in our society as a whole. Sociologists are discovering that the further we get into the, quote, sexual revolution, the less sex people are actually having in our society. Doesn't sound like a terribly successful movement to me. Lust contributes to widespread problems with body image. The more our society chooses to idolize and hold up men and women that meet these nearly impossible cultural standards of beauty that we have, the more the other 99.8% of us struggle to see our bodies as beautiful or worthy. Lust is having a profoundly negative impact on children in our society. The most recent data I could find shows that children are having their first encounter with porn when they are 10 years old. That's elementary school. Some high schools are considering adding porn literacy classes to their curriculums because students are watching so much porn that they are entering into sexual relationships thinking that the porn they have watched accurately depicts sexual relationships in real life, and it doesn't. We're having to teach our high schoolers not to follow the cues that they see in porn just so that rates of sexual assault in our high schools don't skyrocket. And these are just a few of the negative effects of lust on our society. I could go on. We could be here all day talking about the effect that lust has on our society. Jesus actually gives one more negative effect of lust right here in the passage, right here in Matthew chapter 5, and that's that lust often motivates divorce. Motivates certain types of divorce. So in the passage, it might seem like Jesus moves on to a different topic in verses 31 and 32 where he starts talking about divorce. But in reality, he's just showing how this same core problem of lust plays out in a different arena, has a different sort of outcome sometimes, and that's the arena of divorce. Now, before we get into talking about this, I do want to give a quick disclaimer before we do. And that's that I know that divorce is a very personal and emotional topic for a lot of people, likely a lot of people in this room. And because of that, I want to acknowledge that I'm not even going to attempt a full treatment of the topic in this sermon. That wouldn't be possible or or even helpful as a flyby conversation. Plus, I don't actually think that's what Jesus is trying to do in these two verses. In these two verses, 31 and 32, I don't think he's trying to give us a holistic theology of divorce and remarriage. That, in many ways, is what he does in Matthew 19. So when we hit Matthew 19 in our series, we'll do a little bit more in detail on the topic of divorce. But all I think Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5 is that he's carrying out everything that he's already discussed and showing us another way that it shows up in society, another effect that it can have sometimes out in the world. So here, he's not so much discussing all types of divorce in the world as much as he is discussing one particular type of divorce and one particular approach to it. So let's read these two verses, and then we'll unpack the situation together. So skip ahead with me to verses 31 and 32. We'll come back to the two verses that we skipped here in just a bit. 31 and 32 say this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's what was going on in the passage, just for you to understand what Jesus is speaking to here. In this day and age, it was widely known, widely understood that adultery was off limits for God's people. Most Israelites were crystal clear on that command from the Old Testament. But people back then did what people always do, which is look for ways around crystal clear teachings in the Bible. And there was at least one group of people at the time that said, okay, I get it. I can't sleep with a person who's not my spouse. I understand that. But if I divorce my spouse and marry the person that I want to sleep with, then I'm good to go, right? Then it's totally fine because then it's not adultery anymore. It's marriage. That's what some people were doing in this day and age. And it didn't help that a lot of them had misinterpreted a passage from the Old Testament about divorce, the one that Jesus references here. There it said, if a man divorces his wife, he had to give her a certificate of divorce, So some people read that to mean as long as they went about divorce in a legal way, no matter what the reason was, God was totally cool with it. Now, like I said, that was a pretty terrible misreading of that Old Testament passage, but it was a very common misreading of it. And therefore, this was a pretty common practice at the time. So at the time, primarily men would just go get a divorce and get remarried to somebody else in order to try and make their adultery spiritually and morally acceptable. Not all that different from what a lot of people do today, actually. And to that practice, speaking into that particular practice in the society, Jesus comes along and says, absolutely not. You you can't just go get a divorce because you're tired of the person you're married to. That's the exact same posture as someone who looks at a woman he's not married to in order to lust after her. You're you're still objectifying other people when you do this. You're, You're still using them as a means to your personal ends. If anything, now you're objectifying two different people. The person that you wanted to be with outside of your marriage and your spouse who you're now just casting aside because they no longer seem to meet your needs. It's the same posture. It's the same heart posture as adultery. It's not better. It's actually, if anything, worse. So in the passage, Jesus says that anyone who does that, anyone who participates in that practice, is one, still guilty of adultery from God's perspective, and two, is now morally responsible for making their divorced spouse an adulterer also, assuming that that spouse remarries. So Jesus' point is that at least some divorces that happen are just one more casualty often of lust. The, The practice of objectifying other people, using them to satisfy our needs, and then casting them aside when they no longer do. I know many of you in this room are likely victims of this type of divorce. You you either were the spouse that was cast aside. Or, or one of your parents maybe was, or, or one of your friends was, and then you and everybody else had to pick sides in the divorce. A lot of you know firsthand how destructive this type of divorce can be. And so Jesus says, you know, some divorces are, are just one more example of how lust harms people in our society. So listen, here's my point with all of this. Everything we just talked about, as a society, We can keep playing this game where we pretend that lust is just fun and exciting and harmless and natural, where we tell jokes about it and write TV plot lines out of it, 
where we use it to sell products and sell magazines. We can keep doing that. But the reality, the, the data sitting right in front of us in hundreds of different ways tells quite a different story about the effect of lust on our society. It sure sounds to me like lust is having far more of a negative impact on our world than a lot of us are ready to admit. And here is why lust is harmful. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. The reason lust is harmful is because lust trains us to see other human beings as objects. It trains us to see other human beings as objects. It trains us to ignore the image of God in another person or other people and to use them for our own happiness, enjoyment, or pleasure. And as Marcus mentioned in the teaching just last Sunday, any time that we ignore the image of God in other people, harm and destruction always follows. A hundred percent of the time. You may see it immediately, or you may see it after years or decades, but any time we disregard the image of God in other human beings, destruction always follows. And that, I think is precisely why Jesus instructs us in this passage to do whatever it takes to root lust out of our hearts and our lives. So this brings us back to verses 29 and 30. Take a look with me back at those two verses. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So first, I think it's worth noting just from the get-go that Jesus is not being literal here. Maybe that's a relief to some of you. He's not being literal in his instructions here. Just before you get out the scalpel or the saw, just... Realize that to start with. Jesus is not seriously advocating for amputation and disfigurement as a strategy against lust. If for no other reason, then, and follow me on this, let the reader understand, uh, if Jesus seriously thought that for men, cutting off parts of their body was a legitimate strategy against lust, he kind of missed the most obvious one, right? Okay, just wanted to make sure we were clear on that. So I don't think Jesus is giving literal instructions here. I don't think he means for us to actually go do the things that he mentions. Jesus is using hyperbole in this passage to get his point across. But listen, that's anything but a cop-out. That's anything but a cop-out. Because if Jesus is willing to use such extreme language in his teaching to grab people's attention, that should tell us something about how serious he thinks we should take stuff like this. You, You don't incorporate something like amputation into a sermon for no reason, right? That grabs people's attention. And so the question we need to be asking is what is Jesus trying to say when he uses this figurative language? Here's what I think it is. Jesus wants to be clear that in the fight against lust, we need to be willing to take drastic and even extreme measures to root it out of our lives. I think that's what Jesus is trying to say. We need to be willing to take drastic, even extreme measures. If sexual sin is as destructive as we have seen today, if sin is that destructive, 
We need to take a no-holds-barred approach in our efforts to shake sexual sin's grip on our life. So let me just try to give you some ideas of what this might look like. What does it look like to, metaphorically speaking, cut off your hand in regards to sexual sin? One idea is that it might look like making certain shows or movies off-limits for you. If you are easily given towards lust, there are going to be some things that you just have no business watching on TV or on Netflix or whatever it is. And I'll add on this one, uh, it's not just the TV shows and movies that show a lot of skin. For sure, be careful about those if that's a struggle. But also consider the shows where every single plot line revolves around a trivial view of sex. There's plenty of those out there. There are shows out there that really don't show much skin at all, but every single plot line is about objectifying other people and using them for pleasure. That can be just as harmful, and that's actually teaching you something on a deeper level about how to view other people. So be aware of that. Another idea is pursuing accountability on your devices. So for most of us, our our phones, our tablets, our computers tend to be the access point when it comes to porn or certain apps or just the unhelpful use of social media like we were talking about earlier. And because of that, I know men and women that have either installed accountability software on their devices, accountability apps, or they've just activated restrictions on their devices and, and they make it to where their spouse or their best friend or their roommate are the only people that have the passwords to it and can change the setting. Maybe that's what you need to do. I know a lot of men specifically that right now are just rocking old school flip phones like the Razor. Anybody remember those? The Razor phone from back in the day? They rock those old school phones because they don't have internet on them. And for them, it's worth it. Even if it's inconvenient to not have a smartphone, it is worth it to them to root sexual sin out of their hearts. So maybe you need to think on something like that. Uh, For you, maybe it's using discretion about dating apps. So I realize we have a church of, I think last I checked, about 60% single people. So I realize that it is probably unrealistic to think that nobody on our church will be on dating apps. But with that being said, I I will just say, please be aware of what they are teaching you to believe about the dating world and about other people. Some of the dating apps, not all of them to be sure, but some of them are, are teaching you, they're literally training you to shop for people based on their appearance. They are teaching you to, to judge another person entirely based on their looks. And if you don't think that is having an effect on how you view other people or how you view yourself or how you think about sex in general, I think you're being naive. Because if you use apps like that repeatedly, they are going to over time teach you to think about people in a certain way. So just please be aware of it. If you're single, you use dating apps, just practice asking yourself the question before you use an app, is this app encouraging me to see other people as, as complete, holistic human beings, or is it training me to objectify people based on their, their appearance? Lastly, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is probably the first and most important way to to metaphorically cut off your hand is to tell someone. To tell someone it's a struggle for you. The thing that I have learned about sexual sin in the past almost 10 years of ministry is that sexual sin thrives, and I mean it absolutely thrives in the dark. The longer that you struggle with it without anybody knowing or by telling yourself, I can't tell anybody this because it'll be too embarrassing for me, the longer you do that, 
usually the more permanent, the more lasting, and often the darker it becomes. So if you want to get serious about the fight against lust, one of the most fruitful things that you can do right now is tell somebody about it. Maybe even text them right now. Say, hey, I need to talk to you about something this week. Don't let me forget. Whatever it takes, as soon as you can, let somebody in on what you're struggling with. And, and if I could just encourage you with one other thing on that, uh, don't be vague about it. Christians love to say stuff like, hey, I struggle with lust. That can mean anything. <laughs> that could mean I looked at porn one time or I've been addicted to it for two decades. So if I could just encourage you when you tell them, just, just put it all out there and say, hey, I struggle with lust and here's what it is. It's this app, it's this time of day, it's when I'm around this person, it's when I'm in this type of situation and I really need your help asking me how I'm doing with it. I really need your help fighting against it. Be completely transparent about it. Often that is the first step, almost always, that is the first step to rooting it out of your heart. So hopefully that at least gives you some ideas to think on. That's far from an exhaustive list of what this might look like in your life. Hopefully we can talk more in detail about it when we discuss this teaching in our life group this week. That's the hope. But if I could just encourage you with what Jesus says here, his point is to do whatever it takes to fight the presence of lust in your heart. Even if it's complicated, even if it's unideal, even if it's inconvenient to fight against it, fight against it anyway. That's Jesus' point. It's kind of inconvenient to not have a hand, pretty inconvenient to not have an eye. Jesus' point is it may look like inconveniencing yourself if you want to be done with this in your life. But his point is that sex is important enough, sex is powerful enough, and that lust is destructive enough that it is more than worth some inconveniences in your life to fight against it. So as we approach the end of the teaching here, I... I just want to tell you this, uh, as a pastor, it is so difficult to give a teaching on sex and sexual sin. There's probably a lot of reasons for that. One is it's just heavy. I mean, I feel that at the room. I think you probably do too. It's heavy to talk about. And I, this is the second time I've done this today. After the first service, I was like, man, it feels good to be done with that. Oh, wait. <laughs> so it's just heavy to talk about. There's no way around that. It affects a whole lot of people. I'd say probably most people, especially in our demographic, the demographic of our church. So, so it's difficult because it's heavy, but I think it's also difficult because really when it comes to sexual sin, I, I think there's actually two different messages that different people need to hear just depending on where they're at in the struggle. I think one message is, is the message that Jesus gave us today in Matthew 5, the message of, hey, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, do whatever it takes to fight against this in your life. Take it seriously. I think some of us have probably gone far too long, far too far in our life treating sexual sin like it's not really that big of a deal in our life. Like we'll deal with it one day, we'll sort it out one day. And because of that, I think it's wreaking havoc on some of our lives whether or not we want to admit that. So the message that some of us probably need to hear today is what Jesus said. Hey, wake up and let's get to work. This stuff isn't going to go away on its own. It's not just going to magically vanish. We have to actually deal with it. Sex is far too important, far too powerful to approach flippantly and carelessly in our life. That, that's one message that people need to hear. But the other message that I think a lot of us need to hear in regards to this stuff, and I want you to look right at me when I say this, 
God's affections for you are not dependent on how successfully you fight lust in your life. That's not how God operates. Not the God of the Bible. He is not more happy with you when you successfully fight against lust and less happy with you when you don't. That's not who our God is. Some of you I know have have been personally cutting off your hands, so to speak, for years of your life. You've been going to extreme measures for a long, long time to fight against sexual sin in your life. You've been taking it as seriously as you know how to take it, and it still feels like it won't go away. It feels like no matter what you do, you can't fight that lingering glance towards that person. No matter what you do, you cannot shake that porn habit. You cannot control the places that your mind and your heart wonder in certain moments or in certain situations. And because of that, I know a lot of us are just wrecked by feelings of shame and failure when it comes to sexual sin in our life. And listen, I think a lot of us know there is no shame quite like sexual shame. So I want to just tell you a little bit about my story. The first time I saw porn, I was in middle school. A friend of mine came over to the house. My parents weren't home. He said, hey, have you ever seen this website? And before I could say anything, he pulled it up on the browser. And what I didn't know in that moment, but would soon find out, is that that experience would would trigger a multiple-year addiction to porn in my life. For some of middle school, most of high school, into my first couple years of college, porn was a regular part of my life, just all the time. And I still remember my junior year of college coming to know Jesus, becoming a Christian, and thinking to myself, oh, this will fix my porn problem, because obviously Jesus is not happy with it. You may be shocked to find out that becoming a Christian does not, in fact, magically fix a porn problem. And so I went through years of being prayed with and prayed over and asking God for healing and asking other people to pray over me for healing in regards to this. And listen, I would love to say that there was just some big moment where somebody prayed over me and it just magically went away and I never struggled with it again. I know that happens for some people. It did not happen for me. What it took was years and years of inconveniencing myself, making life more difficult, more complicated than it had to be in order to fight against lust to to the point that literally this day, my wife is the only one that has the password to certain restrictions on my phone because I just don't trust myself. It doesn't matter how far in the past it is. I don't trust my own heart in that regard. I think the other lie that a lot of us believe is that um, when we get married, it won't be a struggle anymore. I can't tell you how many guys specifically, I know, I know of some ladies too, that have just said, okay, once I get married, then sex will be okay. It'll be permissible, and so I know I won't struggle with lust anymore. Listen, if anything, what I have figured out is that a lot of times in marriage, all it does is that it reveals it all the more. And if I'm completely honest, even at this point in my life, praise the Lord, porn is a thing that is, for the most part, in the past of my life. It's not an active struggle anymore. But if there's one thing that I've found out in my life, it's that porn, the roots of porn, go a lot deeper than just porn. Years of using porn creates patterns in your heart and mind that don't just magically go away all of a sudden, even when porn's not an issue. It creates patterns of thinking about other people and about sex that don't just vanish all of a sudden. 
So while porn is not the issue in my life anymore, I am regularly plagued by things and thought patterns in my mind that all those years of porn discipled me to think and to believe. And because of all of that, just if I'm completely honest with you guys, there are moments where I just feel so beaten down by the fight against lust. Moments where I feel so frustrated that it often feels like I'm doing everything I know how to do and those thought patterns still remain. Those thoughts still remain. Those ways of thinking are still there in my head. And because of that, there are quite a few moments in my life where I just feel like a colossal failure when it comes to the fight against lust in my heart. I know probably a lot of people in the room are in a similar place with it. And so if that's you, I I just want to take this time to say it's in those very moments in my life that I find so much hope in the words of Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. There's something I need all of us to hear today. Jesus did not die for the future version of you. He did not die for the new and improved you, for the spiritually impressive you. He did not die for the version of you that one day doesn't struggle with things that are embarrassing to confess. It is so incredibly easy to believe that Jesus is putting up with us now because he knows who we're going to be one day. Listen, that is not how Jesus operates. Not according to Romans 5. According to Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, while we had nothing of value to offer God at all, that is when he chose to go to the cross for us. Every single one of your sins were future sins when Jesus died, which means there is no sin too big, no sinful life pattern too difficult, no secret too dark for the Spirit to bring healing right into the midst of it and freedom. So just in case some of you, like me, are inclined to believe that God's love for you rises and falls based on your fight against lust, based on the success of your fight against lust, can we just today, once and for all, put that lie to rest? The beauty of the good news of Jesus is that his affections for us always and forever remain the same. We are not faithful, he is. He is not caught off guard by what you're struggling with right now. He is not saying to you, man, I really thought they would have kicked that porn habit by now. I really thought they would be done with lust and comparison by now. Jesus sees us in the midst of our sin, in the depths of our fight against it, and says, I love them right now, currently. They are my son, my daughter right now. And them I am well pleased right now. Not once they get it together, not not once they stop struggling with all of this stuff, right here and right now. And starting from there, he says, I will love them into freedom from their sin. That's who our God is. That's what the cross and the resurrection were all about. We are called to fight against lust in our lives, to be sure. There's no doubt about it. But God's affections for us are not dependent on how successful the fight is. They're based on what has already been accomplished for us in the cross and resurrection. And once you know that, if you're willing to fight, the shame of sexual sin does not stand a chance. So here's what I'd love to do this morning before we close. I'd love to just pray for each and every person in this room. 
I know that the reality of what we've talked about this morning is, is that it tends to affect either directly or indirectly, probably just about all of us in this room. And so what I'd love to do this morning is just pray for freedom. Uh, nothing that I've said this morning, no words that just came out of my mouth, nothing that we just saw in the scriptures, none of that in itself can create freedom and healing. But what can is the spirit of God working through them. And so I'd love to just pray for us in regards to that. Father, um, we grieve the impact, the negative effects of lust on our world. God, for so many of us, we grieve the effect that it has had on our own hearts and our own minds. God, I know for a lot of us, we, we can see very clearly the effects that it's had. But God, this morning, we're, we're not here to grieve, we're here to celebrate primarily. We're here to rejoice in the fact that our struggle and our sin and our failure is not the end of the story. We're here to celebrate that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would make that real to us, that you would help that impact our hearts in the way that it needs to. And God, that working through that incredible truth, your spirit would bring life and healing. And God, we ask that through that, you would set us free. God, you would help us to be a people that don't, don't buy into the lies of objectification that other people are just there for our, our pleasure or our happiness or whatever it may be. But that we would be a distinct group of people who know what it looks like to truly love another person. To know what it looks like to love a group of people, to care for a community of believers in tangible ways. But God, specifically when it comes to sexual sin and sexual shame, I pray that you would bring freedom, you would bring life, you would bring healing. If we need to tell somebody today, I pray that we would tell somebody. If we need to invite you in for the very first time, I pray we do that. Whatever it looks like, God, we pray for the Spirit to do what he does, which is to bring healing and life. And we ask this in your name. Amen.